welcome to the Neurodivergent Musician Podcast. I'm your host, John Hart, and I'll be joined by a very special guest, Mr. John Gom. We'll be talking about neurodivergent musician life. I'll let him introduce himself in a sec, but each episode is broken up into a traffic light format where we'll share insights in the red section, improvised babble in the amber, and a recommendation or tip you might find handy in the green. So, how are you doing, John? I'm okay, I think. I never know for sure, <laughs> um, but I think I'm all right. Don't know. We'll find out, mate. <laughs> have, you just come, have you just come back from tour? Yeah, well, no, I came back. Um, I've been very hectic recently, and it kind of kind of um, dismantled. Sometimes you finish a load of traveling, and then you come back feeling really kind of energized Some occasionally. You know, I mean, you'll have been exhausted. You're, you're never like not exhausted some of the time, but um, but this time I went to Nam, which is a big trade show in Los Angeles, and um, it's really intense. Yeah, um, but it was actually surprisingly fun. Um, well, I say surprisingly, I was expecting to, have, you know, but sometimes it's too intense to have fun. But um, it was it was really good. I was really well looked after, and um, I got COVID, and it was not very nice. I think I got it like when I got back, I was feeling really, really run down. And I was like, oh, what's wrong? It must just be, you know, done like a 12 hour flight or something. So I assumed it was that, but it's got more and more ill. And then I had to kind of, the next thing I had to go and do was Italy. And I was still kind of getting over it. So I, I had to drag myself through that. And I also injured my wrist. No. So I do, I do martial arts which is terrible idea for a musician um it, i mean it's great in a, in a lot of ways it's really good for your brain but it's um yeah i just what was it often, what, during I, a move or something like that were you during uh i do with a lot of different kinds of techniques in the martial arts that i do it's quite mixed um and this thing we were doing a like a hold like a restraining thing it's almost like a security thing that they would teach to the police or whatever. Right, right. Like restraint and immobilization. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this was a wrist thing. And I, I just thought, oh, I don't, I won't do this. I'll just sit it out. Um, but then um, I thought, well, no, I can, I can do it to somebody, but I don't really want to let them do it to me in case it goes wrong. So I did it to somebody and then we kind of switch, you know, this is what usually happens. You learn how to do something and then we'll try it with a partner and then you'll switch over so they can try it on you. And it got to the point where that we were going to switch and they were going to try it on me. And I was, I was going to say, oh, no, can you find a different partner for this? And I just felt too guilty and let them do it anyway. <laughs> it was like, and he got it wrong. Oh, no. got it wrong. Well, he got it. He, he got it right. That's the problem. <laughs> so whenever, again, you're training, doing that kind of stuff, you're supposed to, the, the most important thing is you're careful with the other person. And you look after your partner. Um, and he was, he was, Heavy on purpose. He was just didn't realize how gently you have to do it. Um, So, uh, yeah. So I dragged myself around Italy with a wrist injury, playing all these gigs in pain. And then the day after I got back, my cat died. So it's basically just don't laugh. And I'm kidding. I'm sorry, John. Don't know you that well. (laughs) I shouldn't scare (laughs) you like that. No, um, you know, it is a comedy of of disasters. I'm very, very, I am genuinely very, very sad about my cat. He was only like 
really young and we got him in the pandemic because I had a cat for 20 years and he died um, before the pandemic started. And then I was like, okay, I think we, we should get a cat, you know, to get us through lockdown. Having a kitten is a really nice thing. To Pet do. therapy and everything as well. Yeah. So it really, really, he really, really helped us. And then he just, he was he's totally fine, really healthy, energetic cat, or so you think. And, and then suddenly, yeah, he just seemed really poorly. We took him to the vet and there was nothing they could do. And they reckon maybe he had a heart condition or something. It's, you know, it's funny, they're strangely delicate little guys. And uh, it's like so, mm. the grief thing, I mean, in any angle uh, of life, like the five stages of loss of things as well. I mean, whether that's on people's radars. I actually have been writing a song about that recently, the five stages of loss, because it happens in identity. Sounds happening. It sounds cheery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, right, okay. Um, you should write five songs. There's five parts. <laughs> right, five fucking exactly, songs. Exactly. Yeah, bringing out a new EP. This is going to sell well. Um, but uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, it's, it's like a measurement, but I, some people like it, some people don't. And I was like, actually, it's quite a good process, you know, especially with COVID, yeah. relatives passing or whatever it is. It's like, how do yeah. you, how do you summarize this? And I suppose I, I can't really. So I don't. I don't. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, that's right. I won't do that. Is it? Are you sure? Well, as as two neurodivergents, I mean, isn't that ah. just like isn't that just like cutting up Close like up. just a normal standard and the improvised? Yeah, it's like my mind's gone somewhere else now. But yeah, I, I don't really process, I don't really react to things, and I never have emotionally. So does it depend though on the thing? I do react. I just like don't. A... There's not an immediate. So, um, I might get really upset because something's happened, but I don't actually connect the fact that I'm upset or angry or sad or, or worried with the thing that's happened. So I might feel really sad after my cat's died or angry or all these other emotions which are normal, but I cannot connect it to that. Like, even though I know it obviously must be yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I don't have like a thought triggering a feeling. Which is why for people who have neurodiversity and maybe suffer with other issues, like mental health issues, a lot of the stuff for treating mental health issues, a lot of the therapies don't really work that well. Or they kind of do, but you have to do them differently. So there's like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, mm -hmm. is, the, is the standard yeah. um, uh, treatment for depression and anxiety on the National Health Service in this country, you know, along with medications. And um, it doesn't often work for people who have ADHD, for example, um, because they can totally understand the concepts, but they can't apply them because they might, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to describe. It, it'll work in some ways, but, but not others. Um, and you know, the ways that it theoretically can work will be things like impulse control. Like it might stop you from losing your rag, losing your temper about something immediately in the moment where you actually know what it is you're losing your temper about. But actually it's incredibly hard for an ADHD person to control their kind of impulsive <laughs> responses. So you, it can actually just make you feel worse about it because now you know how to stop yourself doing it, but you still can't. And then they might give you medication, which doesn't 
work either because and it's wrong. So, so, like, so yeah, it's a whole it's thing. Interesting. I, I was reading up about. Have you ever heard of um, Alexithymia? Have you heard of that? Uh, I saw, I've been again. learning about this week, and it's just like Alexa, actual, what? Alexithymia. Um, never heard of that yeah so apparently that can be connected with adhd can be connected but it's a disconnect of emotions and empathy but you can have empathy for an object so like for instance our guitars we can have empathy and emotions for our for objects rather than people and other things again this is there's a rabbit hole obviously with all of these things in regards to whether it's adhd and uh, asd Mm. and um, but I was just like, I, I was reading up this week and I was like, what? This is because I've been looking into, you know, there's trauma therapy and all sorts of other things. Yeah. And okay. um, is that, is that going to be the thing that actually can uh, connect with me rather than CBT? Mm-hmm. Cause that's talking. Well, um, there is CBT for ADHD is a separate thing. I don't actually, these days I don't read about, that kind of stuff. I just want to judge my own experience. So, mm-hmm. for example, I am really empathetic. I'm never really sure what empathetic means. I'm certainly very sympathetic. So I, I do know what it means, but sometimes people use empathy when they really mean sympathy. So, but I am certainly both of those things. Um, but it's much easier for me to be empathetic in a normal way or in a recognizable way to me with, say, somebody that I don't know or somebody that's not real. So it could be, if I think about somebody suffering, if I imagine somebody suffering, it could really upset me. Um, whereas most people would realize that's in their imagination, maybe. But if it's somebody that I know and I care about that's suffering, then I might have a really strong emotional reaction to that, which is, as well as the empathy, I might have fear or anger or something else you know, depending on why they're suffering, I might have different responses. And that can, and then you have this weird disconnecting with those other emotional responses. Yeah. And this is the other ADHD thing, which is connected to that, which is that ADHD people are generally incredibly good in a really kind of big crisis that most people would be like getting a bit wobbly about. So, um, so you might see something terrible happen, like an accident happen, or, or somebody might be trying to start a fight or whatever. And you can, for good or ill, remain quite calm in that situation and kind of sort it out really rationally without having an emotional... Um, you know, you're not overwhelmed by the situation. You might be afterwards, <laughs> but in the moment, it's like suddenly the world has reached your speed. Suddenly, you know... You normally feel like you're going too fast for everything and everything's kind of, work, you, you know, you're kind of plummeting through the world. But now suddenly the world is plummeting. So actually you're the one who's suddenly going, oh, wow, everything's now. You can almost see it in slow silly. motion. Exactly. They say it's like a Ferrari. Your brain's like a Ferrari, you know, ADHD brain's like a Ferrari with bike brakes in some ways. And that's kind of, I, I, yeah. I, again, all these little phrases, everything as well, thrown about and things. And obviously you've got to kind of make that subjective um, <laughs> feeling about it, but you're right. There, there are those situations and then you're reeling mm. from it afterwards. But I, I also don't think it gives you a chance to even think about that situation. Whereas I, if I'm on a way to a gig and, and I'm in the car, it's that whole mm. process of just like, okay, overthinking, overthinking, overthinking for a whole car journey. Um, 
Yeah, I probably used to do that. I'm, I find distraction is really, really good. And it's a technique that I've used in situations where somebody else might be upset or scared about something that they've got to do. So I'll distract them the same way that I might normally distract myself. I'll talk about completely different things. I'll notice everything in the in the space or the room or something that's happening in the world or, and then really engage with that to completely distract myself from worrying about the thing that's going to happen. So that's, you know, that that's how I generally avoid that. So if I'm driving to a gig, I'll have music blasting mm -hmm. that I'm really into and singing along to, or I'll be listening to a, a book, you know, listening to like an audio book or something like that that I'm really involved in. Um, if you just kind of stick on talk radio or, or have music that you're kind of not paying attention to or that you're able to not pay attention to, then, um, yeah, I think you can go down rabbit holes because that's what ADHD does, really. It just leads you down all these all these thoughts sprouting off in different directions. And if you follow one of them, it'll take you along this kind of chain of doom, getting ever more terrifying. Mm. And I, I met up with... Um... I met up with someone because I've never actually met up with other people who have got ADHD and there's always, I'm always told I'm monologuing or I can, I can jabber uh, a lot when I go into those rabbit holes. And this, yeah. this conversation I had with this guy, it was like, I didn't realize it was three hours, but it was just so, it was so convoluted. We were, we were cutting each other up. We were going in all rabbit holes, but it was like, my there's, there's two analogies I have for it. I sort of find, and I don't know if you agree with this, but the music analogy I find of neurodivergence is like kind of we see everything in stereo in regards to our mind. If we're focused on someone, we can still hear like, you know, the heater going off there and then another sound yeah. going off there, but they're equal percentage. Whereas a lot of people can focus mono. Um, yeah. Well, I can't listen to a piece of music and listen to the whole thing all at the same time. So I can only listen to music and, or I feel like I'm noticing every individual bit and then I'm noti noticing the bits. So I can hear the other bits as well, but I'm, my mind will constantly focus on this thing and the next, you know. So maybe I'm listening to the bass or the drums or just the snare drum or just one singer, or I'm constantly kind of analyzing it or, um, you know, or analyzing my own reaction to it or just something. So, um, yeah, as opposed to just listening to the whole thing, like you fucking supposed to. Like but it's, my, it's mindfulness. It's an absence of mindfulness, is, I think is the best way to describe it. And yeah. how... So leading actually quite nicely on, um, we I, I, I realized we didn't actually do an introduction uh, at the okay. beginning. So okay, can we uh, feel free to edit it back in? No, <laughs> no, no, no. This is this is great. This is great. Oh, yeah. So who the, the fuck around. am I? Oh yeah, yeah. So this. So, you know. um, okay. So well, introduce. I mean, I've you know I've I, I've got I've even got this guitar here from 2014 that you signed back in the no. years ago and stuff as well. So. Uh, it's rub enough, but you, you know, asked me too. I did. I was I just like, I, do you know what that was at the Cuse guitar, guitar, uh, guitar show? I think in London or something like random like that. Okay, it was. Um, but uh, John Gom in 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 a nutshell of of music, or it doesn't have to be a nutshell if we're speaking in ADHD terms. But uh, yeah. I, I don't know. 
sort of summary, really. Yeah. Um, so I am a acoustic solo performer, singer-songwriter, um, and I am um, best known for playing guitar in an unnecessarily technical and fancy way, um, is the best way to describe it. So um, the song I'm best known for is called Passion Flower. And you can Google Passion Flower and it'll come up. You'll see a picture of a guy holding a guitar on the search engine. Well, I said Google already, I think. Can't help it. So, um, <laughs> and yeah, that's kind of my biggest hit that I've ever had. And yeah, that's basically what I do. So I travel around playing guitar and stuff and singing and that's it. Making records. That's what kind of all there is to really explain. <laughs> but um yeah, and I'm also a independent, mostly independent um, artist, and I am a dad, and I have, um, for the purposes of this podcast, I'll tell you, I have ADHD is my diagnosed um, condition. I am probably on the ASD spectrum somewhere as well, but I kind of have never, um, well, I've never been diagnosed with that. And so I, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of such a three dimensional spectrum of neurodivergences. It's like a Venn diagram, like they, isn't it? Really? Like yeah. A, Venn a, diagram lot, a lot of things. That, yeah. There's so many. And, um, I feel like it is very much. Kind of, I uh, you you can empathise I, like I can empathise with Tourette's, for example, very strongly. I I don't have Tourette's, but I can certainly feel. I totally get it. So I think there's um, yeah, that's because that's part of that spectrum as well. And yeah, so the the way those things interlink is um, you know, it's pretty extraordinary, and I. Um, but yeah, and I've also had various mental health conditions over the years, largely as a result of having undiagnosed um, ADHD for most of my life. And with oh. was that a late diagnosis? Were you? Did you? Yeah. Because I remember seeing a video. I think you said you had you, know, you maybe had a mate who, when you were growing up, about it, and you you know, and then did you did you always think you had no. ADHD, or was no, it, was there other things that were diagnosed? Like you kind of like. Uh, you know, I've, you know, I've, you know, I wouldn't share, you know, I've got, I've got a parent who's got bipolar and then I went into crisis and everything as well. And I thought, right, this is, this has got to be this. And then they were like, mm. no, we don't think it's this. We think it's ADHD and all And you're just like, oh my goodness, you're, you're sort of like, it was the yeah. depression was the first diagnosed. They diagnose it and then they just obviously throw the meds at you. Um, yeah, of and, course. Uh, and, and it's the almost like, the, the problem with those medications is like, they, they, they can make ADHD worse. It depends what they're medicating you for, but you're lucky you didn't get medicated for bipolar. I did. And as a result of that, I have one pupil. My right eye is permanently larger than my left eye. Yeah, because ADHD is usually treated in terms of medications by increasing dopamine levels. Yeah. So your dopamine levels are too low. And if you take antidepressants, for example, then they increase serotonin levels usually 
Um, and that can impact your dopamine. It can, that can reduce your dopamine levels a little bit, but it may well not. It may well be that, okay, if it lifts you out of depression, that will increase your dopamine levels because you're more able to be motivated to do things because you're not depressed. Um, but the medications used for bipolar intentionally reduce dopamine levels because if you have too much, if your dopamine spikes, then basically it's like you've done a load of cocaine and you're very happy and confident and optimistic and may do completely insane things, very dangerous things, extremely risky things, thinking that you'll be fine and you can do it. So that's kind of the bipolar up, you know, the mania element of bipolar, which I ne I was always diagnosed with bipolar for a long time, but I never thought that it really seemed to fit. And when they put me on a particular kind of medication for that, it made me, God, it was so bad. It really transformed my personality into something that I didn't recognize. Really? And I couldn't control my hands either, my fingers properly, because my dopamine levels were so low. Dopamine as well as motivating you. Um, so it makes you kind of want to do things. It also, dopamine is the neurotransmitter which controls the physical movement of your body both voluntary and involuntary movements. So like trying to find motor control will be the first thing to go. Mm -hmm. um, but involuntary stuff like pupil dilation, heartbeat, it's pretty fucking scary um, that they would give you a drug to crush that down without being really sure what you've got. Um, there's a really big problem with psychiatric profession, which psychiatrists most psychiatrists that I know will say, yeah, like, this is a problem. I'm not kind of, you know, coming at it from an external perspective only. And it's kind of a problem with medicine in general, the way it's structured. It's quite old fashioned. It's that you have, for example, an ear, nose and throat doctor, and you have a gastro, a GI, gastrointestinal doctor, and they're separate field. And if you've got a problem, which is you've got a gastrointestinal thing affecting your throat, which can totally happen. Mm -hmm. um, it can be very tricky. You can be, you're caught between two completely different specializations and it's like a cutoff line between the two where it's like, okay, we don't really know what's wrong with you. And eventually maybe you get to see a gastroenterologist or something, so the, right, the right doctor. But you, may you haven't got like an time. overarching, you know, advisor or someone that who's like, you know, with GPs do that, and I, I actually think GPs are, are pretty awesome. They're much much maligned, but I think general mm -hmm. practitioners are really, really important in that way. Um, and yeah, um, but with psychiatry, it's the same. So you'll have your kind of most common psychiatrist, standard psychiatrist, is about mood disorders and personality disorders. So mm -hmm. depression, anxiety, bipolar, which is classed as a um, a mood disorder. Um, which I guess it is. And then personality disorders like um, borderline personality disorder or em emotionally unstable personality disorder, which I have been diagnosed with in the past is one of the many wrong diagnoses, but it's actually getting closer to ADHD at least in some ways, you know. And um, so all those different personality disorders that, you know, quite famous ones like narcissism or whatever. Um, so that's kind of, one kind of psychiatrist, then you have the other completely separate kind of psychiatrist who deals in neurodevelopmental conditions, like primarily autism and ADHD. 
And they're completely separate. So if you go and see the, the most common kind of psychiatrist mm. who might be a very high-level specialist, they'll diagnose you with everything under the sun except ADHD because that's just not in their wheelhouse. It won't even occur to them. And I don't know, you think you were really, really lucky to have somebody say, oh, we don't think you've got bipolar, we think you've got ADHD. I think you were really, really lucky to have that happen. I've never actually heard of that before <laughs> happening. So it, yeah. it's very, um, I mean, because I, uh, you know, I'm going into another episode of this, but this sort of the deep well of it is, uh, you know, I was always on the cusp. I think COVID, obviously, if you went into it with a mental crack or anything, you know, if you've got trauma from your childhood or whatever it is, that it was such a vehicle and especially homeschooling and trying to run a business trying to whatever it was um, it was horrendous mate i it, totally it was agree just, i think for everybody and we're, we're still reeling from it it's it wasn't for everybody i know people who had a great time yeah oh, I, 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 I think my brain likes to think oh this was everybody my cousin so. my cousin sending me sending me photos of her with you know with her feet on a table and a dog on uh, her see, yeah. fiance, I see just eating <laughs> eating a you know a takeaway saying oh i just finished work we Great time, really relaxing in lockdown. Mm. I hope it stays like this forever. Oh man! I mean, and it it was it's it's so hard to pin down, and, that, and that's probably why you know I've started the podcast. It's, it's actually um, this like the, the amber section that I talk about. The improvised section is almost like my tutor father hat talking to this inner child to kind of soothe it, and so doing it for myself. But um, when I went to the doctors, it was almost like, look, something's wrong. I've had a panic attack. Blah, blah, blah. And it was like immediately SSRIs. You can have them tomorrow. And I was like, all right, there's no test. There's no assessment. And I was put on what? Cetraline. And they explained only supposed to have it. For, and that's like the default. You're only supposed to have it for two or three weeks. They left this for six to 10 weeks. And that's why I went into crisis. Then they put on metazapine, okay. which is the sleeping one. And that I, yeah, and I think I agree that. with you of ADHD where, if you've got this thing trying to jump out of you all the time, um, and then you've got this SSRI, which is the sleeping drug, and it's almost trying to imprison it at the same time, mm. you've got this huge conflict going on. Again, I don't know really know the science. I don't. I, I only know. It I know the science a lot more, so I, I don't. I'm not so interested in learning about the condition from a like. From that point of view, to be honest, because I just spent years and years and years and years doing that with other conditions, depression, and I learned a lot and anxiety and stuff. I learned a lot, which is still really, really useful. But then when I got diagnosed with ADHD, and I took the medication, and it just fucking works. <laughs> it's just like a miracle. So I just can't be bothered learning about do feel, it. Do you feel a light just went on? Uh, I, this is what I've been told. When I as can't soon as really describe it like that. It's it's really subtle. So, so I, I was very, very resistant to the diagnosis of ADHD. I got it because, to be honest, it was kind of a last resort. It was like, okay, nothing else is working. Nothing else fits. And I read about, my a family member said to me, How, don't you think you've got ADHD? And I said, no. And it's weird because I just started to think about a lot of things that people have said to me over the years, sometimes referencing ADHD, sometimes as on comments on my YouTube videos saying, wow, this is the most ADHD guitar playing I've ever seen in my life, for example. And it's just silly, frivolous. That's not a diagnosis. But there's, there's, 
They're bleeding. There's a stereotype about ADHD, which is that it's naughty, hyperactive, hyperactive little boys, usually. When I was a kid, I found hyperactive, super energetic little boys, sometimes really, really fun. So my best friend, when I was a little kid, I'm talking like from the age of like, I guess we were one or two years old, up to, I I think he left the street where I lived when we were about eight or nine. And he was really naughty boy. (laughs) And like, just constantly wanted to get into mischief. We were only little kids, but we were constantly like pulling pranks or getting in trouble, doing things that we knew we weren't allowed to do. Because he would always make us do that, and it was really, really fun. But he was diagnosed at that age, and I never knew this until recently. He was diagnosed with ADHD or just hyperactivity, as it was known then, usually, and put on um, Ritalin. And um, I know now that that affected him really badly, and he was on it for years, like most through most of his childhood, and. It's not been good for him, and it wasn't good for him kind of into adulthood, and it's really affected him. And he didn't have ADHD. He doesn't have ADHD. He was just a little shit. (laughs) He just really enjoyed mischief and having fun, and he had a lot of energy. But he didn't have ADHD, and I've heard that a lot from men, like adult men over the years who say, yeah, I was, I tell them I've got ADHD and said, yeah, I was told I had that when I was a kid and they put me on the drugs. It was awful. I, you know, and they, they just don't ever feel like they did have that. And, um, Do you feel, I mean, yeah, whereas I, my, my childhood, I was very much like, I was always spaced out. I was very kind of physically uncoordinated and constantly be injuring myself. And I still do that now. I'm always having accidents and just walking into things. Yeah. I hit somebody in the head yesterday. You know, not hard, but I, bon- I bonked a lady on the head. But I think bonk <laughs> is the best word. It's like a gentle bonk. Right, with right. my, I was taking off my sweater. Didn't see you for a moment. I've got very long arms, and I just bonked on the head. And she just laughed. Thank God. And I was just so mortified. I'm going to do that all the time. Stuff Were like you that. reeling from that afterwards, though? Were no, you... I'm all right now. And do you know what? It's better now, because I know that stuff like this always happens. And it's probably always going to happen. There's not really anything I can do about it. I could t- keep taking the medication, which makes it a little bit less likely to happen. It makes me not fucking freak out when it happens and, and be absolutely mortified. Yeah. So I am mortified, but I'm not like an emotional wreck immediately. I am able to just deal with it and apologize. And I could do anyway, but you know, anyway, I'm just, I can deal with it better in the moment than I could before. But I don't want to, I don't hate myself for it now because I know that it's kind of not, not my fault, or at least it is my, it's my responsibility, but it's not my fault. There's no point punishing myself for it. You Do know? you feel, when we were going back and we were talking about grief before, mm-hmm. uh, do you feel you had now, you've had this awareness and now you've had the medicine stuff. Do you feel, do you feel there's an old John and a new John, or do you feel that everything's just kind of... It not is, really. John, John's just... Like my mum would say, she's like, out of everyone in my life, she's the first one to go, oh, yeah, you used to do all that all the time. That's just John. Like It's like this kind of... That's just the identity and everything that's just come along with it is just... Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah for sure, there is that. 
Um, but I don't know. I, suppose I don't, I don't, I I suppose... don't feel like I've fundamentally changed. No, all, all the medication does is... I just heard it sharpens focus and concentration. And yeah, a it's bit very more... subtle. It doesn't affect... So it, it's very different to uh, mental health medications. Because mm. ADHD is not a mental health condition. It's a neurodevelopmental condition. It may well cause mental health conditions like depression and anxiety, especially if it's not treated. It's not treated, yeah. But it's, um, it's not itself a mental health condition. And the drug, the most common drug for it, well, there's two. There's methylphenidate hydrochloride, which is most commonly known as Ritalin. And then there's um, dexamphetamine, mm-hmm. which is basically pure amphetamine, um, which in this country is most commonly, I think Amphexa is the most common brand. So all the science stuff I know all about. But that's just because I love science. So um, the way they work is they're basically dopamine reuptake inhibitors. Well, Ritalin is a dopamine re- reuptake inhibitor. Um, whereas the other one actually just pumps dopamine to your brain, almost like forces it to make do- dopamine. Um, so it's kind of more powerful. Um, I forgot. What it so yeah, they don't they don't change your mood. They don't change your mood. So because they don't change your mood, you don't feel like your personality has changed at all. I found that SSRIs were much more likely to ch- change my personality. Mm. Because they change your mood, which is a factor of your personality. Over a period of time, it's like, you know, you have like your moods that are very fleeting. But then if, you're, if your mood on average over a period of months or years changes, then it's effectively a personality change. Whereas with um, the ADHD medications, because dopamine isn't like, it's not an emotional um, neurotransmitter. It doesn't make you feel happy or, you know, or, it must make you feel love like oxytocin or it's it just is about it's a doing it's a doing neurotransmitter it makes you want to do stuff and it makes your body function and do stuff like this movement so um it doesn't seem to affect your personality at all the what the way that i would describe it working the first time i took it i i could tell something had changed but i couldn't tell what it was i didn't feel any different it was a bit like getting off a ship so if you've been on a ship at sea and you, yeah. for like a few days, then you get off and stand on the land and it's like, it's still, fuck, it's really, it's really still. It's weird. You don't notice that you've been compensating all that time that you've been on this ship. After a while, you get used to it, the movement. You don't notice that you're compensating for it all the time. And it and what about feels the like thought, everything the- is still. The thought patterns and processes, because obviously uh, I was told it's like having crossroads at your, you know, um, frontal cortex and then you kind of, you know, there's no traffic warden there or whatever it is. I mean, there's lots of analogies. And then it can wake up. All of the the stuff's still there. So if you imagine that, say you normally have seven TVs in your head all playing at the same time, for example, might be a way of describing it. But you have seven different offshoot so you could be thinking about something and there's seven different other things which are equally as important as the thing yeah. that you were thinking about so you know you you were thinking about this thing and then suddenly you've got all these other things that have just sprouted off and they're all equally important as the thing you're actually trying to fucking think about but when the medication the difference it makes is that you still have those things 
you still have all the different TVs going, all those different offshoots or those different distractions. But you can actually choose which one to watch. Or you can choose, if you have this thing you're trying to think about and it makes all these other things sprout off it, you can choose to ignore those and stick with the one that you want. Because it becomes the back and ban as such, and then you're like... Yeah, and it's not that it's not as obvious as I've described it, not for me anyway. It's not like as... You know, that, but that's the best way that I can describe it. But I find it to be to be subtle, but absolutely tra- over a period of time, absolutely transformative to my ability to function, basically. So, has it changed? Yeah. Uh, like you say, it doesn't change personality and things. But uh, I tried a an ex- you know an experimental one called Alanzapine, I think it was. Um, but I was doing this along SSRI. So I think I was just completely fucking up my body, the different chemicals and stuff. And I've never done, I've never done, I've never taken any. Everything's chemicals. So yeah, you're just kind of just, it was stressed too bad about that. A lot of people, they'll, you know, drink anything, smoke anything, but it's like, oh no, I'm not taking any medication. It's chemicals. It's like, holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think with, has it adapted? Sorry, you were saying what, yeah, go on, sorry. Musically. Do you mm-hmm. feel if you go to your guitar, is there any? Do you feel there's any difference now to so when you were writing and putting together yeah, Passion Flower and Ain't Nobody and uh, and other arrangements? Yeah, it's better now. You just do you do you still have? Um, you still have loads of ideas. It doesn't really make any difference to me in that way. No, but I'm more able to follow a thread, which is also really important, and get to the end point. Um, it used to be a case that I would feel like I was flinging ideas like at a wall, like flinging paint at a wall, and occasionally mm-hmm. like an image would form, and maybe I could try and make it into something, and it was really chaotic. And it might take me months to write a tune, but not because I'm sitting there painstakingly making it for months, although I am really painstaking. That's my natural personality. So I want to make things in a really painstaking way and create these complex kind of architectural structures musically speaking, complex kind of musical structures on the guitar. But it would feel quite, like, chaotic and, and mm. like a lot of luck was involved. And now it feels more like I'm, I'm able to be ordered and also see problems as they arise or see things that are just, or just make a judgment about something and like, actually, that's shit. Stop, stop writing that bit. Don't just go down that rabbit hole because you're doing it. Because you're, forced, you're, you're, basically, you're, just, you're just on that path. I actually say, yeah. oh, actually, no, just just stop that. So, yeah, I'm much more able. I'm much more able to write stuff, as far as I can tell. Um, it makes. Do you it think the luck before was because you had seven channels going on at the same time? It's almost no. like if an idea was able to get through. No, it's much more like here's 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 six months, and <laughs> 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 now every kind of maybe one day every two months you'll go right okay now i can write a bit of this tune and then that's it and then you forget about it then you come back to it so it's that that's the reason that that it was it was luck it was over a period of time but it's um yeah i I, it definitely like adhd is definitely an aid to creativity but all that means is you have a lot of ideas and it's so normal. Um, so, for example, 
you might say, okay, I think I might, um, I'm going to go on a trip tomorrow. I'm going to go and take a day trip to this lovely town. And then your ADHD might then think of a million things you could do instead of that, or a million things you could do while you're there, or a million reasons not to do it. That's not helpful. And some of that is not some helpful. Is never a lot of that is, if, yeah. is massively breeding anxiety because you'll think of a million problems. ADHD people are really good at finding solutions to problems really quickly, and maybe a million solutions to the same problem. But they're also really good at just finding the problems themselves, almost in order that you can then solve them. Um, and also, I've got quite a good problem-solving mind. I'm really I'm crap. My mind is really crap in a lot of ways. It's really disordered, and I'm not very good at kind of practical things. But I'm, I am quite logical. So I'm quite good at problem-solving. But the thing is, just because you've thought of a solution to a problem doesn't mean that you can ever do it or that the solution will even work. And or that you've even thought about the problem correctly in the first place. So you might have solved the problem, but the problem might be wrong that you're trying to solve. So it, creativity, if, if creativity, if all it came down to was just how much, how many ideas you've got, then that would be great. ADHD people would be artistic, creative, or marketing or business geniuses but it doesn't because you can think of a million ideas and they can all be shit and to be honest probably nine i can't work out the number nine hundred thousand nine hundred <laughs> that's not right hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine ideas ideas out of a million are not that great or certainly not revolutionary yeah. genius level so um yeah it doesn't come down to that that's not what creativity is so yeah you so don't i lose suppose it. with creativity and that's why with your music um and i know very much with my music and i mean it's gone different avenues and things but right I mean, this is why i suppose the importance of writing something for yourself doing something for yourself first um and how much it emotionally connects with so like you're saying the ideas could work and everything as well and the song ideas but i suppose if it just if it, if it works for me if it evokes emotion every time i think i pick up my guitar and i play it um and even out of a host of like 80 songs that i may have created there might be only like five to eight core um you know high quality songs that connect with milestones from my life and every time i play them they evoke that emotion i suppose do, do you get that with your your process of songwriting and and composing where it's um it sounds very office you do it for yourself first rather than uh, thinking about anything that's you know if you're going to release this which the ADHD yeah, yeah. can do the curiosity of yeah being, i don't care about that know, i've never cared about that yeah. I, I might be a lot more successful if I did, but I don't do that. I, I just can't. And I, I don't know. I, I just, 
I mean, when when I mean when Passion Flower came out, it's 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 probably and you've probably watched it. I don't know if you've seen Ren High Ren that's just come out over the last uh, six months and stuff as well. But um, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. yeah. So when to me, Passion Flower, not music musicality or anything as well, but the the impact I've watched for 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 both for me, I had when I watched Ren, you know, High Ren recently, and I've watched it like twice. So I did the same as when I, when Passion Flower came out. It was one of those where <laughs> how I got into Fingerstyle was I carved a hole at the back of a nylon guitar and I stuck a snare drum at the back of it. And that was my introduction to Fingerstyle for a guitar recital. And I was like, I had no idea about the science or anything about it. And then I started getting into things. And then when Passion Flower dropped, and I was just like, oh my word, like you've you've gone outside of the the boundaries. Without, I don't know, without consciously knowing you've gone outside the boundaries of songwriting and other things, but it was, I'm probably going convoluted here. I probably don't even know what I'm talking about. But um, there... Keep going. I believe in you, John. Keep going. <laughs> there, there is a point. There is a point. Um, I think um, the point the point is, is that when you were developing something like Passion Flower, do you still get that same feeling of when you were writing it, when you released that video, do you still get that same feeling every time you perform it now on tour? Well, that song. That song. Does it, does it, does it connect and with yeah. you every single time you play it? I get that with, there's a track with mm. Lost of Sea or Wind Chime no, or whatever. not really. I don't no? know. No, not it connects with me more now than it did then because I'm more able to be open to that and experience those things directly. I'm less kind of scared of it overwhelming me, which it, if I let kind of emotions in too much in the past, if I was playing or performing, I would get really overwhelmed. Like I just wouldn't be able to really play if I really did that. And um, I learned how to do that over, over the years more or in a more controlled way. Um, but when I'm writing music, I don't think about how is this going to affect other people? Are they going to like it? Are they not? I just think about what is it that I am trying to, trying to achieve? What's the point of this? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, that's, that can only come from, from myself really. Although it does relate to the world. Like sometimes I'm, I might write music because I think the world needs that, but that's, not to say that then everyone's going to hear it and it's going to change the world or anything like that. It's just that we all exist in, in our own version of the world because we all absorb different, you know, we all live in a different physical place and different family around us, but then different town, a different country and different, we all take in different parts of the media if we do, if any. So we see the world differently. So somebody could live in the same house as somebody else, but watch a different TV channel, and one of them's normal, and one of them's a fucking psycho, <laughs> because they just absorb terrifying news media, which has turned their brain to a lump of coal. <laughs> just a just kind of a lowly, gently burning lump of coal. It's kind of how I imagine it. But um, yeah, so... I might want to write a piece of music that changes the world, but what I mean is just my world. It just reflects a part of the world that I see, and then having vocalized it through the form of a song 
makes me feel better about it or like I'm doing something about it. Well, like I've at least spoken about it loudly. Even if I never play that song to anybody, that's the kind of experience of writing. That's why we need to talk about those things. Do you feel those, um, those songs? Yeah. Do you feel Passion Flower is now a milestone? It represents a milestone of that particular life, or is it just continuous? It doesn't because it was really successful. So it does in terms of, you could say there's a before and after that, but not before and after writing it. I do like it, which really, really helped. <laughs> and so I'm quite lucky that I had a viral video. So, for example, um, like a, I have fingerstyle guitarist friends whose big kind of viral hit, if, they ha- if they're lucky enough to have one, is a cover. And they're happy to play it. Um, they kind of have to play it when they perform. But it's not a song... They might even not even have covered it because they really like that song, which I think is a terrible mistake if you're going to cover something because you love it, surely. But, um, yeah, or, or they might... Like, so Andy McKee, I don't know how he feels about it, like, right now, but, um, you know, Andy McKee, fingerstyle instrumental guitarist, and he's, his kind of super big breakout hit was Drifting, so he has to play it. I've, I, I've never seen him live, and he hasn't played it. And um, he didn't seem to like it very much when i was talking to him i don't know how he feels now but he, he you know i know him pretty well and he's like oh it's just he doesn't think much of it musically i'm like no dude it's good it, i like it i think he thinks it's he writes really beautiful emotive mm. melodic yeah, stuff yeah. and that one it's the melody's a bit plinky plonky compared to his other stuff so like riley actually and yeah i like father, it you know i, I I love it. And I tell him how important it is as well, because I, I knew like about percussive guitar and stuff. But when I heard that tune, which is long before YouTube, I heard it. I heard it in Candy Rat. I can't remember where it was 2000. So you think it was released in 2007? Yeah, some of that. Um, but I heard it probably about 2000. Right, because okay. he posted an MP3 on a Michael Hedges message board that we both went on. Oh, wow. Um, so. Yeah, I heard it, and I worked out how to play it. I, I played it completely wrong, actually. I was tapping the notes in the wrong place. But I, to- I told him at the time, and I had to remind him many years later, that he was the first guy I'd ever heard do that style of percussive guitar, but make it melodic as he played it. Nobody had done that before, and they hadn't. Yeah. You know, not in that way, where it's like it's just simple, singable melody. And it was like, oh, yeah, I suppose you're right. I said, no, it's it's important. That. That's why people love it. But that's not the only reason. It's also got a cool vibe, you know. And the, But it's funny because the fact that he didn't like playing it, when I saw him play it live, he would almost be a bit angry as he played it, as if he slightly resented the music that he was playing. So like those pop stars he, who have to sort of bring out their one of their greatest was, hits, you know. But it was awesome because he had, as I told him, it's like because you've got this slight edge when you play it he's not an edgy guy you know what everybody is but in general certainly what the way he is on stage he's he's super lovely and relaxed and he's not kind of an he's the he's just not an in-your-face kind of guy but when he plays that song he kind of oh he puts it makes him there's a little bit of anger in his playing that isn't normally there and i really like it 
<laughs> but anyway, it's really, really forensic <laughs> examination of Andy McKee's live performance of, of, drift, of drifting. So, yeah, but I feel very fortunate that my viral success pop hit video or whatever was a song that I actually, it's one of my favorite songs that I've written. And I'm, so I'm always happy to play it. I'm not, it does connect with people emotionally, like the lyrics and stuff. Seems to. So when I play it live, people are really happy to hear it. And I know that every time I play it live, there'll be people who, somebody at the end of every gig will come up to me and say, oh, I've been following your music since I was a kid, which is quite depressing. I've been following John, John, Granddad John. I've been following your music since I was a kid. I remember when I first heard Passion Flower. And now finally, 10 years later, I've seen you play it live. It's amazing. So it's all, for at least one person in the room, that'll be, you know, a really special moment for them. So. Um, yeah, it never gets old. That never. And, and the depth of the song, I mean, you know, lyrics and everything as well, how transformative, I, you know, obviously I keep on keeping an eye on posts and tattoos and whether it's been messages, it's been, yeah, it's, it's those things. And I suppose, like you said, if you've got a song that's gone viral, but you're kind of actually, it's just connected on so many, so yeah, many levels for people. But it feels like luck, to be honest. It does feel like luck. Even just the writing of it feels like luck. Certainly the lyrics. And then remember you, little was that Ain't Nobody on the back of that? Lyrics. Was Ain't Nobody on the... Yeah, that was because I did a... Um, I just... Um, I did. I used to do session work for these guys who did um, remixes. And I just remember, they sent me a CD that I was on. I'd played guitar on a remix of... Oh, I can't fucking... I can't remember what it was. But they used to do quite a lot of covers. So, for example, I remember going into the studio and playing Sweet Child of Mine, you know? So I borrowed a Les Paul from a guitar shop and just plugged it into, like, a amp simulator. And they, and they recorded that because it was cheaper to get me to play it than it was to pay for the acapella. An acapella is, like, a generic word in remixing circles for, like, one track. So yeah. usually it refers to the vocal. So if you want the acapella of a track, what you mean is I want the vocal without the backing. There's a lot of old studios, like Motown, even though everything was recorded on four tracks, that's all they had. And then if they wanted to do anything else, they had to bounce it. So they had to take two tracks and re-record them onto right. one empty track of tape. Okay, but they always, they were very clever, they always kept the lead vocal on one completely separate track. I don't know why. Maybe they just looked forward in time and thought, people might want these vocals for remixing, or if there was just another reason, but they always seemed to do that. But anyway, they even call, if they want to buy just the guitar section of Sweet Child of Mine from the original, um, whoever owns it, whatever record label, then um, it's quite expensive to do that. It's much cheaper. Still got to pay the rights, but it's much cheaper to pay me, you know, just a day fee to go into a studio. And this is a long time ago. But I just remember on that album, there was Ain't Nobody by Shaka Khan. There's a remix of it. I listened to it and went, this is fucking great, this song. I haven't, I haven't really listened to it consciously maybe before. I'd heard it, but not really. So, wow, this is amazing. Like, it's just such a great song. I love the synthy bits, but the way it's got that massive kind of groove. And I also just noticed how oh, the bass and the vocal melody, like, it goes, it's a bit of bass, and then the vocal. It's always separate. It's like, oh, that'd make it really handy for playing on guitar. <laughs> so I can play it up to try and do them at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up making it incredibly complicated anyway. But um, 
yeah, I just thought, oh, I'll have a go at arranging that. And I literally did it in a day, as far as I know. Wow. I probably did change it a lot after that. But certainly the nuts and bolts of it were done there and then on a really shitty guitar, actually, as well. Just, I think my guitar was being repaired, so I had this really shitty old guitar that I always did it on. Um, yeah. But I find doing arrangements for other people's stuff quite challenging. But I'm doing, I've been doing some at the moment. So once my wrist is better, I'm going to start recording those. Because you did a uh, Kate Bush one as well? Uh, was that was that? That's uh, just part of another song. That just was a thing that used to just happen live, and I ended up recording it. So I quite like the thing where, when you're playing live, you might just segue into a cover, and then go out of it again, back into your own song. Right, right, yeah. Although maybe the cover has left its footprint on your song, as if, as if you're listening to the radio and then you switch stations and something else playing on the other channel. And then maybe you switch back, but you're stuck between the stations, and mm. you can kind of hear both of them. And I, I love that. I love quotes and of other people's stuff within songs or, or I love sampling. I, I think it's amazing. It's, it's really thrilling when you're listening to a track that's got a sample and you recognize the sample and the song that it's originally from. I, th- I, find if, I mean, if you like it, if you like the, if you like the remix, or oh, it's not even necessarily a remix. Like I remember hearing that um, Labby Sifri thing on um, Slim Shady by Eminem. Um, it's like an old song from the seventies, and hearing that, going, "Oh, that's a banging sample!" It just completely out of context. But actually, it's like pretty much his whole tune is that sample. He's not his vocal over the top completely changes the context of it. Yeah, so that's um, it's, it's really cool. It's really creative and fun. And connecting those things, and I mean, he has autism, by the way. If you didn't know, Eminem has. Oh, uh, really? No, I didn't know that either. But I suppose um, with musically, um, you know, with with the neurodivergent musician life that I'm going to call it and stuff. Do you find um, touring, recording, and things as well? Yeah. I and mean, you've you've done it enough now, probably to kind of get used to it. But no, or do you get used to it? No so hard it got harder and harder and harder as well so i mean being a dad as well that that adds you know yeah that's the thing about adhd is it builds up right so you you, you've been suffering with it all your life and really struggling with things that you have no reason to be struggling with necessarily you know it could be social stuff or it could be practical stuff it could be traveling it could be touring it could be anything it could be work social family all of them um and then you have a kid as well on top of that or something else in your life, but that's a really common one. And suddenly it's like, maybe you can handle the first kid and then the second kid happens. And then it's like, um, you know, at some point there's a tipping point where you can no longer cope. Yeah. And that's often when people get end up getting diagnosed and, oh, there's a global pandemic or all of the above. And you end up, that's there's a tipping point. It's like, okay. And that's when adults end up you know, getting diagnosed finally because they need treatment. Um, but yeah, for me, the thing about touring with ADHD is that when you're traveling, it's very stimulating to the senses. You know, there's a lot of stuff. There's endless distraction because you're in a different place. Everything, like for me, I've been to places like China on tour or Mongolia. 
So everything's different. Like the temperature is different. The climate is different. The surroundings are different. The geography is different. The buildings are different. The people, obviously the language is different. Everything smells different because all the food is different. Um, there's, uh, it's, there's, you don't ever see, it's not that you can't read the sign. It's that, you know, because you don't speak languages, you can't even read the letters because it's different lettering. So you, everything, there's no familiarity. From the moment whatsoever. you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, it's very difficult to forget that you are in a faraway place and there's constant distractions and constant stimulation. And that, for somebody with ADHD, is absolutely exhausting. Absolutely exhausting. And it's very exciting and fun. And if you're traveling just for fun, people with ADHD can be great at that because mm. they get stuck in and explore and whatever. Well, also, but if, if, you're, if you're working... And you've got to pray, you've got to play gigs in front of like hundreds of people every night. It's it's um wow. It's very 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 stressful. You've got to try and switch it on, and it's you know mm. the stage is, is the only place that, I, that when I'm when I'm traveling, the stage is the only place that I feel totally safe. And is that from the first song, or do you need this kind just of just the moment I step on it because? It's still, you know, you still got everybody looking at you. You might be nervous or you might not. But in terms of like, when I'm on stage, I can do anything and say anything. Mm. Because, you know, I learned a long time ago that you don't have to pretend to be normal. You can take the mask off on stage mm -hmm. and people like it. It's kind of, you know, that's all right. You can just say ridiculous things or fall over. Who fucking cares? It's just a thing that happened. It's all entertaining. <laughs> and, you know, you can just express yourself emotionally. There's nobody there that I have to interact with. There's an audience, but that's a totally different thing to a one-on-one -on -one interaction. So I can't offend anybody, say the wrong thing, say something stupid, confuse anybody, get confused myself. I can't be late now. I can't break anything. I can't, you know, because I'm already there. I'm on the stage. That's fine. Whatever. It's happened before it's happened. So yeah, often that's the only time that I can really relax, but often it's too late. I'm so strung out from the overwhelm that I've been experiencing already that I'm a, I, I'm a nervous wreck on stage, but not because I'm nervous about playing, but because I was a nervous wreck anyway. Mm. So yeah, it, it's, it never got easier. Um, you when you're on stage, it is easier got... now. It is easier now because now I understand why that's the case. And I have, I'm able to cope with it better, and I'm also medicated, which massively helped. Mm. So yeah, it's much easier now. Being on stage, I mean, because you because you're on it, you know, for so long over the tour, it's the only place you can emulate that safe space. You you because for me, it's the if you're in China, if like you're saying, if you're in a different country and you, there's no familiarity whatsoever, the mm -hmm. stage is the only familiar place that makes it feel safe like you said safe yeah i mean every, everyone is different but no it definitely is it, it, do you know what it even starts before that it's when i get up to do the sound check yeah, it's, put, yeah, it's putting up idea. it's the mic stand and then putting my gear out and plugging it in it's like oh yeah you, okay so no i am now. that process of plugging it's, it's, it's the well. same everywhere you're right yeah that is that is what it is it probably is because it's this it's familiar and it's the same everywhere 
It's not the same, but you know, it's it's the same enough. And You've suddenly, got, I know exactly what I'm I'm doing. Well, because you can work out your distances of like where you are from the pedal board and like the mic. It, it, there's a there's a process, I imagine, and and also maybe yeah. When you start plugging in your pedal board, and then you can start running your leads, and then you can start doing your adapter. Anything like that is kind of like familiar territory of yeah, it is yeah. setting thing. And there's there's all this this this, this mindfulness of okay right for the next four i don't know how many hours i can actually there's still chaos going around all the time and maybe people come up sound guys who speak maybe not speak english and things as well and you're like it's fine it's fine we'll kind of get used to it but um and i, I imagine you know you're the same with your your pedal board um in a way that if because I know, you know, we've got similar pedal boards, but I know you've got some slightly different. I need to upgrade mine when I'm going to do tour and stuff. But uh, I've, I've, you know, tweaked EQs. I've done all sorts of stuff. So I'm literally can go to places and plug in and then mask outside. So there's this, I don't know, that just feels this calmness of. Uh, yeah. I, don't know, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I think it is. I think. Um, yeah, I mean the the problem the the main problem that over a lifetime of kind of you know getting into trouble, so I'd constantly be in trouble, and so I'd either be doing something wrong that I'm not allowed to do, and get but not realizing, or kind of realizing but hoping for the best, or I'd be lost, or I'd be late, and being lost when you're in a, a different country on your own is can be like a bit scary you know yeah and i think over a period of time it's the same as anxiety or it's or it's basically anxiety builds up because you you don't trust yourself anymore you just don't trust yourself and on top of that you might blame yourself so um that's that's a really really big issue i think people with adhd in, in, in all kinds of ways um is that you don't trust yourself you and also with ADHD, you react to things before you've thought about it. So you're speaking before you've thought about what you're going to say. And you you might do something impulsively, and then it might turn out to be the wrong thing. And so you can't, you literally kind of can't trust yourself. And that that's really, really tough for a musician on tour. And you, is that something that's similar to, you know, if you ever have an argument with someone, I used to do this all the time. I'd be on the way home and I'm already having that conversation with that person even before I've started having the real conversation. And it's that kind of process before I've made it, I've, I've um, worked it all out in my head that this is, this is how it's going to go. Duh, 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 duh. And it, it, it sort of never does, but I, I, with your touring as well, do you have someone yeah. that goes along with you or are you? Usually not. I prefer not to. Right. Um, it depends. I can, but it's got to be somebody that I already know really well. Although I don't know, it, that might change. We'll we'll see. I could I could give it a whirl. So um, yeah, there's not many people in the world, to be honest, <laughs> that um, that I would want to tour with. So generally, I'm on my own. But that's actually not that abnormal as people might think. Often. Often, even when people are in a tour party, they're quite separate because 
you do get you do get touring parties, whether it's a band or whatever, who seem to live like a fucking family all the time. Um, but and that's great, you know, or sometimes it is. <laughs> sometimes it's really toxic, but often it's great. But um, you do get tour parties where they spend so much time together, they kind of don't want they that what they get really good at is just being alone while they're all together because that's that's what they actually want. Yeah. yeah. So um yeah it's uh it it's pretty tough but um it is I, I, yeah I'm not I'm not great at at touring with people that I don't know. I get I get really worried about what they might be thinking about me or or whether I might be doing the wrong thing or you know so, I yeah. I used to be in lots of bands and then I just uh when I jumped over to solo uh I miss the musicianship I miss the thing I just don't miss any or the rest of it and that's why I'm like as much as I go on my own it is chaotic it's almost like um you know contained chaos that's not bleeding out over to everyone else and we're not getting polit- politics and also their chaos is then bleeding into my chaos and things as well so okay so i'm never really alone because i've got my manager um who organizes everything where i go so all i've got to do is basically follow a schedule yeah so it's like it's it's all it's kind of you know it's it's way easier it's not like i'm just improvising when i get there you know, I'll be, I'm not that great at that. I need yeah. somebody, I need to know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing when I get to each place. So everything is kind of booked in advance. So if I've got to rent, a, if I've got to hire a car, it's already been booked and, and paid for. And I've just got like a thing on my phone or something printed out. Right, I have to right. give to them. And so it's all kind of done for me, usually, um, which is really, really lucky. And I'd, I'd, I'd really struggle without that. But I could even, I can really struggle with it. Um, but these days I kind of am more able to trust myself a little bit. I know that I'm probably going to be okay. I'm probably going to be able to handle what happened. But sometimes you just have complete nightmares on the road and that happens to that happens to everybody, ADHD or not. So yeah, that can just happen. Cool. So I suppose to sort of uh, wrap it up, I mean, uh-huh. for you know, musicians, maybe, I mean, I read a stat that 70 to 80% of musicians have mental health issues. And, you know, I'm, I'm not looking at, I'm using this podcast to God, kind of. That's really, really bleak. <laughs> that's really <laughs> awful. And do you know what? It's just like, well, there is this norm that, you know, and I grew up with it and I, I imagine a lot of other musicians, it's like, the norm is we have to struggle. And um, I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm using this podcast, but when you were talking about touring, actually, um, and then when you're on stage, you get to this, some of the solo episodes, it's just so nice to just being able to just open out. Well, what you I'm trying what? to do is it's just... not like that. I just want to put this that out there. And also to you, it's that I don't believe that's statistic for a start. And secondly, I'm, I'm good, you know, so I'm okay. And it's not, I just, we've been talking about all the negative stuff, but, um, the fact that I'm able to do it at all 
And yeah. the fact that I'm kind of have to do it is great. Yeah. So I, I couldn't have a job. I could nine to five job. And sometimes I say like to my wife, oh, God, I'm so tired. I'm, I have to do kind of so much kind of pressure and stuff. I wish I could just work nine to five in an office. And she just says, you would last three days. That's you would last three days. And then you would just go out of your fucking mind. Mm -hmm. um, and she's right. I'd be so bored if I have. I want. I remember I once did a, a residency somewhere. No, I played like this event. It's a really long time ago, and I played four days in a row at the same place. And I had to drive to the same city and home about an hour. So I had to do the same drive and then set up in the same place, in the same room, five days in a row. And by the fifth day. I couldn't believe that I was doing the same thing. Like it, I was killing me with boredom by like the, it, like my wife said, by the third day. And that was just playing a gig in this, like a, not like a residency. It was like this kind of long running corporate event thing. It's such a long time ago. Anyway. Yeah. So it's like, it's really great that you do, that you can do that and, uh, and that you either have to do it or that you're able to achieve it or you're forced to achieve it or whatever. And every musician that I know as they get older, They've either quit because it's too much or because a lot of, you know, you do find with a lot of musicians, you know, you're, you're out doing a gig. It, for you, it's a Monday night or a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night. But for the audience, it doesn't matter what night of the week it is. This is their Saturday night. They're going to a gig. They're going to have fun. Okay. So it's, you're like constantly w within reach of a bar. So there's a lot of issues with like alcoholism mm. and, and drugs as well for musicians. And that's definitely a thing and it's some it's a way that some people can cope but then you can't cope like that indefinitely so you get when musicians they start to get older they're either they're like no i don't want to tour anymore they're just going to stay at home with their family or they've kind of figured it out um and some people are just great at it from when they're really young and i know musicians who are just built for the road they're just really yeah, yeah. really good at it they just really love existing that way and that's totally cool as well. And also for people with autism or issues where you lack routine or you need routine. So with ADHD, I'm terrible at routine. I cannot, I've tried over the years so many times to force myself to have a routine, a daily routine or something. So I'm productive in my life. And it's funny because since getting diagnosed with ADHD, I've realized there's no point. Post-diagnosis, I tried one more time to draw up like a routine that I could kind of stick to. And it was just, I realized, no, I can't do this. And also, I'm never going to be able to do this. So let's just go with it. And by going with it, I'm actually way more productive than by trying to force myself into a routine. But when I'm on the road, I do have a routine. I get up, I have breakfast, get in the car, drive somewhere, stop for lunch, drive to the venue or possibly the hotel at this time, sound check, dinner, gig, go back to the hotel, go to sleep, and then that's it. And then I repeat every day. So it's the only time you have any routine in my life is when I have this forced routine of being on the road. So it's actually really healthy for me in that way. I don't stress about all the things that I'm normally stressing about because it, living a normal life is hard when you have ADHD because you don't remember to do the washing or you might not remember to cook for yourself at the right time or when I go to bed when you're supposed to go to bed and you might not be able to stop yourself having a drink or having eating crap that you shouldn't be eating so when you're on the road it can actually be it can actually be really good for you so it's it's really 
you know, it's not like mental health and music is like some kind of toxic relationship. I, re I really don't believe that. So I just wanted to put that out there as a positive. No, 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 definitely. And I, and I, I suppose for, uh, for, for me with even those, those things I sort of mentioned stuff is, um, you know, with neurodiversity, it's kind of, you know, and I suppose I'm just spreading awareness. I'm just going to sort of get in the, get in the conversations talking amongst uh, lots of musicians, but I don't know, would you give any tips or any advice to those musicians who are kind of, that may think they have these things. And if they, if that's the case, in regards to ADHD and things as well, because I know there's a lot of things. Obviously, there's your TikTok trends and all sorts of stuff as well. And um... you know what? I, I, I've said quite a lot about things that I would I want to say. So it's like you've got to learn to trust yourself, hmm. even if you can't, even if you literally can't, because you know that you fuck things up. Well, trust yourself to do that, because it, what you've got to learn to do is cope when you fuck things up, and not blame yourself, not feel horrendous about it. Um, so you've just got to learn to deal with that kind of emotional stuff and you've got to be yourself. So that's really generic advice, just saying be yourself. But what I mean is with, um, ADHD and autism, there's a, a thing called masking. So you pretend a lot of the time you're trying to force yourself to kind of appear normal and you don't have to do that as a musician. You don't have to worry about how you dress because often people with ADHD might, might dress funny and look because you just get so bored. You just want to wear weird shit because it's interesting. You, you know, tattoos and weird hair or whatever. It's not everybody with ADHD, but it's common. So, you know, that's okay. All this stuff, as you can just let it out as a musician and it's important that you do. But to be honest, my main advice for ADHD, which is the only thing I can speak to really with any, any vague authority, is that you can't use it as an excuse, but you can use it as a reason not to blame yourself. And the most important thing about accepting that you are a certain way, that your brain works a certain way, is that it enables you to take responsibility. So this is not really musician advice, it's just life advice. But with ADHD, or there's a lot of other conditions that can make you feel this way, you can sometimes feel like, um, okay, I've made a mistake, how do I get out of it? I've, something's gone wrong, how can I make this so that it's not my fault? How can I kind of, so often ADHD people can get really into arguments where they're defending themselves in a kind of an untenable position. And this can happen with anybody who doesn't have to have ADHD. But for me, the most important thing is to take responsibility. And by kind of accepting that you are the way you are, it frees you to take responsibility and apologize for things that you do wrong or mistakes that you make, or just for being late, or for fucking something up. Just take responsibility for it and say, well, I'll just try to do better next time. That's what you say to yourself. I'll just have to try to do better next time. Mm -hmm. You know, that's 
That's really, really important. It's so healthy for you and it's so healthy for everybody around you to just, you know, be <laughs> the most boring thing anybody's ever said or a musician's <laughs> podcast, but just be really responsible as a person. Just be really responsible. That doesn't mean be boring. It just means that, you know, you've just got to take, take stuff that you do and own um, it. With really acceptance as well. I mean, when you got your ADHD yeah. diagnosis, I mean, were you, did you accept it? No, I really, really railed against it. Process. I, just, I just couldn't really handle that that had ADHD. First thing, I didn't feel like it fit the stereotype. The stereotype of ADHD didn't fit kind of the yeah. self-portrait of myself that I'd drawn in my head. But that turns out that firstly, the, my stereotype of ADHD was wrong and also the self-portrait that drawn in my head was, was wrong because I was trying to kind of find a way of justifying to myself why I was so unable to cope so much of the time. But those ways were wrong. They were just stories I was telling myself and they were stopping me from being able to be a responsible person. Um, and I, I really resisted it for just another reason as well, which is that I spoke to this, um, uh, this doctor and she said, she saw that I was struggling with it and didn't really want to accept it. And then she said, you know, there's two types of ADHD. You have both. And I was like, all right. And I said, like, are you sure? And she said, sometimes I'm not sure. Sometimes it's like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of not sure. And sometimes a psychiatrist will try you on a very low dose of the medication and see, that it works, see whether it works or not. Because that's ultimately the only kind of scientific method way that we can be 100% sure of our diagnoses as, as psychiatrists. But in your case, you've just got ADHD. I've got absolutely no doubt. And it's rare that I would say this. It's like you've, you've got quite bad level of ADHD, particularly inattentive ADHD. But, you know, mental hyperactivity is off the charts as well. So, um, yeah. And, and, and she also said, but we're going to treat it and you're not going to believe how much you've been struggling and what the difference is. And it was actually that, and then when I was treated and it kind of worked, that made me really depressed because I was grieving, as we were originally talking mm -hmm. about, mm -hmm. for myself, really, mm -hmm. and for, like, the kid that I was when I was, like, a little kid, and I was so, like, I just remember being five years old, going to school and being fucking terrified of being at school, really hating it. Mm -hmm. I was so scared of it because I didn't know what the fuck was going on. There were so many people and so much stuff happening, even though probably wasn't it was just a normal school but i really struggled i couldn't interact with the other kids very well i just i just hated it i hated the chaos i hated the fact that i wasn't somewhere that i i wanted to be and you know it's just i and then all through kind of my life i struggled in so many ways and i thought well, all of that it's just because of this it's just because of and at the age this you feel like, now is like you're, you're knew about that. Are you going back through your whole life again? That not not consciously, but does it subconsciously you go back through your whole life and then start to look at different events? Well, different that's a super ADHD thing to do that. So it's, it's a super it's ADHD like thing your, that one of your one of your TVs that's if you've got seven yeah. TVs blasting on you, one of them's probably at least one of them is probably constantly playing. Reruns, like ADHD right? <laughs> hyper focusing on ADHD on yeah, so it's like, like okay, so I've got one telly in my head that's constantly playing reruns of this awful thing that happened or this awful thing that happened, and they could be very serious things or they could be less serious things, but 
um, there's certainly things that have upset you or traumatized you or just you've been embarrassed or whatever and it won't stop playing in your head mm. so actually once you're medicated it's a lot easier to to not have those things constantly going on because they're awful they're awful nobody wants to watch constantly watch a movie of the worst things they think have ever happened to them in their lives in, in their own head you know the only thing so, i've had i used to uh when i was growing up i used to put my knees up on a chair and i used to bang my head against the side of this this chair and for comfort and i was like what five six and i still uh -huh. vividly remember it but then since i've learned about autism and things as well and again i'm going through the process and the yeah both assessments and everything i'm in this limbo land at the moment and things as yeah, well people it's, I, i've done stuff like that and thought it was like self self-harm you know reading about stuff and thinking well this is a form of self-harm i used to um like scratch myself with my you know right. until i would bleed sometimes or i would hit my head so um i would do that as a re repeated thing sometimes i'd do it if i was well, it's usually because I'd be distressed. So it's like, well, I'm doing this in response to being distressed, but it's not self-harm. It is a comfort thing, and it's like a distraction thing, but it's a kind of form of form of stimming, but I'm like self-stimulation. So like some people will just like constantly bounce a ball, for example, yeah. or have yeah, some yeah. other way of, of, of occupying themselves. And do you and, feel uh, you're You know, I do that. I've been sitting here fiddling with, I've, I'm, I've constantly <laughs> have to fiddle with something all the time. I can't stop myself doing that. Do or I have to be eating something. Support. Awareness and education now has given you closure on those things. Like if you, say, if you thought they were, if you thought they were something else that you were growing up, and then you've now I never th thought they were anything except I just thought. Well, I guess I didn't know what they were, or I just thought that I was um, just unhinged, really. Well, that's yeah. <laughs> so it's just yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a lot easier to accept those things, and also I don't really do them so much anymore. And also I do have coping strategies. So after I got diagnosed and I did start to accept it, I got therapy. Yeah, but. I mean, I've seen therapists in the past, but this was a therapist who deals with people with autism and ADHD, mostly children, but also adults who've been di diagnosed in later life. And it's completely different. She was completely different. So I don't know. She doesn't want me to talk about my parents particularly, usually. It's more like, what are your problems that you have? And I'd be like, well, I binge eat. Like, people don't think I do because I'm skinny, but it's really, really common with ADHD that mm. people will be obese or whatever, but, you know. So especially at night, it's really common in the evening. Or sometimes I drink loads of alcohol, like every night or whatever. And she said, well, just don't have it in the house. I said, well, you know, I've got family and, you know, they might want to have it in the house. You know, have chocolate or crisps or beer yeah. or a bottle of wine or whatever. And she said, okay, so you need to buy for your family and a locked, a lockable cupboard and just give them the key and you don't have it. I was like, oh. And I said, well, don't, shouldn't I be like trying to learn how to not do that anymore? And she said, no, you can't. <laughs> I was like, oh. That's good to know. I just, wow. You can't. And the it's really true. Like, I, I like smoking cigarettes. I don't do it. But if I had cigarettes in the house right now, I'd just smoke them. But I'm not going to go to the shop and do it. Mm. It's an impulsive thing. Mm -hmm. So it's the fact that if they were there, though, I wouldn't be able to stop myself doing it. I would just be too impulsive to stop myself doing it. I would not be able to resist that impulse. But the distance between me and going to a shop to buy cigarettes is enough that I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do it. It's kind of it's out like of they sight, say, out of mind kind your, of thing. If you put your phone outside of your bedroom or whatever it is, uh, and then you put it in a 
different room or whatever there is that disconnect that hurdle of or, or turning it off turning off your phone i i've yeah. done it so many times where you can just grab it and then you're then impulsive that you know work. well that's compulsive so that's a compulsive behavior is that you're doing it repeatedly yeah. So it's still an impulse, but it's like a repeated impulse that you're just doing something without even thinking about it. It's like, oh, I'm on my phone, and then I'm on it for hours. <laughs> yeah. I, I get um, the busy so, thing and the drinking as well. Yeah. And it's the smell so, of cigarettes. If there's a smell, it's like... It can, oh, God, and this is just making me want a cigarette. <laughs> I read the book. There's a really famous book. I don't know if it's kind of... I don't know if it re- really works, but I know people who swear by it. I can't remember what it's called. But it's a book about how to stop smoking. I feel like the writer is called Alan Carr, which I know is also like a famous British comedian. Yeah. But I think that's the name of the writer. So I bought, I bought this book to try and stop smoking. And he just describes smoking in this really visceral way, almost like Haruki Murakami, the um, Japanese novelist, he'll write about eating food and cooking food. And it's incredibly evocative, very detailed. And... Um, so it's this book about smoking, but as and and you have to smoke as you're reading this book. Like he tells you right now, light your cigarette, and then he describes exactly what it's doing to you physically, to your body, biologically, and it makes people like never want to smoke again. Wow. Just, okay. okay, but I've read this book and just thought, oh, this is fascinating, like stuff about biology. But I'm really enjoying this cigarette. I never smoked so much in my life after I read that book. So I just like didn't normally smoke that much. I was more addicted than I had been before. <laughs> and it just hadn't worked at, at all. all. I was just able to disconnect mentally between like what I was reading <laughs> and just what I was doing, and just yeah. And then also I just forgot about the book because you know ADHD. <laughs> just yeah. fucking forgot about <laughs> yeah. it. I read that book. I can't remember any of it now. Oh man, that happens to me all the time. I go to my wife and go, "Oh yeah, just read, I've just watched or read something interesting." Like she's like, "Oh, ask a question about it." I'm like, "No, I can't." I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. No idea. I don't know. No idea. I just felt it. I've, I found mm. it. I've got the emotional feeling. Yeah, it washes over you. It washes over you. Yeah. yeah. So my my advice is that whatever it was that I said, yeah, just take responsibility. <laughs> take responsibility. Yeah. And I suppose. Acceptance. I mean, acceptance as well. I mean, that takes it takes it takes its time and things as well. I mean, I'm I feel yeah. like I'm in an unofficial degree of which I know you can. It's probably I'm AD. You know, I've got ADHD going into hyper focus of ADHD into this and stuff as well of the education, and it's like an unofficial degree in this neurodivergent world, um, and it can be overwhelming. Uh, and I know I've read up lots of things like read lots, do you know, process as much as you can and things as well. And kind of sometimes it can be. Yeah, like I say, I haven't been doing that. I don't I don't really do that. I'll pick up the odd bit of information or I'll talk to people about it. And then maybe I'll pick up something new that rings true for me. But ADHD isn't a personality type. Mm. It's just like have, being short sighted or long sighted or, you know, it's biological. It's in your brain. So, um, working at your there own. There are stereotypes, but I don't think there is a personality type for ADHD. There can be loads of different ways that people are and ways that the condition will present. And so, I don't think, you know, you, you, I, th- I think you can kind of just look at all the things that people talk about in relation to ADHD and the possible extra things and say, well, do I experience that or not? Hypermobility is one of them. So I'm really, really, really bendy, you know. 
This is really common with ADHD. It's hypermobility. It's really common. Or rejection-sensitive dysphoria mm. is a some mm-hmm. kind of category of ADHD symptom. And I definitely fucking have that. Definitely. Oh, my God. Oh, like, if somebody, if somebody, like, if, if somebody seems to not want to hang out with me or... If I feel, if I just feel, I just feel rejection, like viscerally, I'll get so sad and upset and feel so hurt. And I, I'm much better now, partly because I think probably the medication does affect that directly, but just mostly because I realize it's a thing. So when it starts to happen, I'm like, I'm probably overreacting here. <laughs> and just, just having that awareness mm. is just, just, it enables you to step outside it a little bit. So you still feel it, but it's like you realize it's not real. And you certainly don't blame the other person. So I would would feel so bad towards people sometimes when I felt like they had rejected me in some way. I'd feel like, why have you done that? Oh, evil. Why have you done that? And they haven't done anything, you know? So I certainly don't do that anymore. Again, it's the whole thing about taking responsibility for it. It's like, you know, it, that might still happen. I might still have that feeling, and I might react to it as well. So it's too late. I, I'm, and then, but then I'll realize later. It's like, oh shit, yeah, that they, that what what I reacted to at the time isn't what was actually probably really happening. So I'll then take responsibility for it, you know. So it's the way that accepting it and realizing why it's happened enables you to like fix the situation either externally with somebody else or some problem in the world or just internally you're not going to beat yourself up about it you're not going to fall out with other people about it or try and find a way out of the solution you of the problem that you've created it's just like okay that happened this is why i can fix it or just move on you know and then that's that and draw a line under it and it's uh that's really the healthiest thing for me yeah and i find because i was diagnosed with dyslexia back at university 20 like Mm -hmm. 2005 and it 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 doesn't feel it felt big then and then it just then seeped into me uh as i was like all right well yeah it's just it's just a sec that's just me you know and i think the adhd and the autism is probably like these two separate characters who will eventually will blend in and i think that's where the acceptance um and the responsibility obviously the time is the healer and the process and thing going through it yeah Um, i think as as you learn about as you learn about these things that will have an effect but it's 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 not like you're a problem that needs to be solved that's not the case it's just you are who you are it's just you'll learn how to live being who you are and everybody has to go through that process Mm. everybody does Mm. it's just harder for people who are neurodivergent mostly because the world that we live in is not built for neurodivergent people. Um, so it is harder. So there's the social structures and stuff, but this is quite modern. I think, I think back in the day, people with ADHD probably were a lot more accepted or had, um, roles within societies or communities which suited them a lot better. There were probably familial roles, probably generational because it's a genetic condition. So maybe they might be 
the there might be the warriors of a community, or they might, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily That's right, like the hunter the back in the cave. I don't cave know about hunting. Certainly, I feel like I'm hyper hyper aware. Yeah. So I do feel like I can spot stuff. Maybe I would be a good hunter. Who knows? But maybe there'll be something. Autism. We you know, probably the forget. One thing that people say is, if, if it wasn't for autistic people, we'd still be living in caves. Yeah. And I kind of think there's a lot of truth in that. Like, who invented the who invented the wheel? An autistic person invented the wheel, without doubt. Who 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 invented? Well, nobody invented fire, but who invented kind of you know the the controlling of fire? That was the ADHD people, no doubt, just burning shit, <laughs> just going, <laughs> oh shit, oh oh no, oh, I've lost a leg, but. I reckon that's a mix My between autism melted, and ADHD. Guys, guys, look, I've got a fire in one place. I've got a fire mostly in one place. I know, yeah, my leg looks bad, but trust me, <laughs> I can cook now. I'm going to cook food. Do you reckon those people had <laughs> autism and ADHD? Maybe it's just like the risk factor of... It's just, just different right. people who probably had roles within society, which maybe <laughs> yeah. like ADHD yeah. people didn't, didn't live as long as everybody yeah. else. Maybe, <laughs> maybe autistic people you know, had, had different roles, but you know, You're I right. just think they would be... Um, I, I think it's just there were probably community and societal roles which accommodated. Because so, otherwise we wouldn't exist. There's a, the, evolutionarily, we wouldn't be here. These things would have been bred out of, of the human species, you know, thousands, many, many, many thousands of years ago if they weren't useful to, um, to the survival of, the, of communities and survival of the species. So... I mean, it's like if you take the top 1%, and especially America and things, and people, you know, they're Marmite, but you take your Elon Musks and your Richard Branson, they're, they're both neurodivergent, and they're, you know, are and they? they are constantly... I don't know. Elon well, Musk, it, uh, I would guess, is, is Richard is Branson's, I don't know for sure. Richard Branson's dyslexic. Uh, Elon Musk, I think... Well, I don't know, I'm not going to label him, but it's like there is... I don't know, I thought, you, I thought you'd do something. But yeah... There's another side I, to it I, as well. There's another side to it, which like, I, I definitely, some people with ADHD, they can kind of embrace it. And we see this with generations past in a way that our generation and subsequent generations aren't really able to do because society doesn't tolerate it. So, for example, you might have people from previous generations with ADHD who might be very, very successful, whether it's, say, for example, in business, because they might be really creative. But it might be a fucking nightmare to be around because they do not mitigate their social behavior because we i have to mitigate my social behavior if i spoke to everybody the way that i naturally want to speak to people so when i'm interacting with my mum, we might argue we might get upset we might shout or we constantly interrupt each other but we don't that's okay that's how we interact okay because that's how we've always been mm. so then you know we understand Stand. that's the way we interact because she's super ADHD as well. But in generations past, especially with men, I think, maybe having that, being incredibly blunt, incredibly kind of abrasive and unbelievably impatient, just and get things done. You don't tolerate people getting things wrong. You just kick them out and just trample over people. I'm not saying that's like ADHD people are assholes, but I'm saying that if you were to do that and just let yourself do that, um, then you might be really successful. And I think that is that is a part of it, you know. I think that's a part of the way that ADHD has sustained generationally as an untreated condition. So um, you do find that people who are 
some people who are really successful do have like these conditions, but maybe they either have treated those conditions or worked around them, or maybe they just don't give a shit, you know? Because you know what it can be like if you, you know, I don't know if you've experienced that, but it can create social friction. But the thing is, if you're, if you go through your life not wanting to upset people or not being able to, not having that power to do that, because you weren't, you know, born into a rich family or whatever, then, yeah, you have to either, you know, it could be very hard to live or you have to, you have to treat it and, and figure out how to live with it in a different way. Yeah. So that's a big, a big generalization, which might be bollocks, but you know, it's kind of a, a it's a rabbit, yeah. it's a rabbit hole, isn't it? Of, of, you do read a, a lot of people who write about their ADHD who've been quite successful. They will say, I was a fucking nightmare. So I had ADHD, but I didn't know. And I was a fucking nightmare to be around. And my staff hated my guts. You know, so now I'm, now I'm not like that anymore. Because people who are still like that don't bite that about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right. Really? On that note. <laughs> yeah, I should, I should go. Yeah, yeah actually. Yeah, a long time. So. Yeah, it's quite late. So, mate. John, thank you so much. When you know, I was I was going to say this is like when John met John, uh, you know, same spoons. But uh, um, that is like these little quotes I had in my head. I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, thank you so much for taking out the time. It's been it's going to be about a two hour uh, podcast, but that's that's amazing. So much little golden nuggets in there, convoluted rabbit holes that we've gone down yeah, and things. And uh, yeah, wonderful. Okay, well, man. I wish you all the well, best, keep, man. Please, um, you know, I look forward to hearing the podcast. I won't listen to my my own episode, but I'll listen to your others. And um, I look forward to hearing whatever you release next because your music is great, as I'm sure I've told you before. But if I haven't, then I love your playing and your vocals and your writing. It's all awesome. You too, man. You too, man. And thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Okay. Cheers, great. We'll see you. Cheers, fella. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.